0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode we're discussing SST-244, the Dinosaur Jr. Just Like Heaven EP. And man, oh man, we've got a special guest.
1: Yeah, we've got Lou Barlow on the show.
0: Yeah, so cool to have Lou on the show. That is a, uh, a big one for me. I'm pretty sure when you and I were on the Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme podcast when Jeff and Saraya asked, like, who have you not had on the show that you must have on the show? And I said Lou Barlow. And so it's it's huge to have <laughs> Lou on for sure. Yeah, it's awesome. Before we do that, Brent, you were telling me before we got started that you had a public service announcement. Oh yeah. Well maybe having Lou on will make up for
1: missing a week of our show. We <laughs> full disclosure, we might miss a few coming up and it's not has nothing to do with, um, you know, lack of interest or anything like that. It was just, we've both got some business related travel coming up. That's just, uh, we're, we're just going to have to see how things shake out here. A few gaps coming up, but no biggie. Maybe some gaps. We maybe
0: not. Oh man. Cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. Cliffhanger. Okay. Well, keep me guessing before we get into this wicked EP, why don't you hit us with some spiels?
1: Okay. I am on Ryan, the like F Alphabetical F of my recent digestions. Oh, well. <laughs> musically speaking.
0: Frankly, I can't wait to hear more.
1: Yeah, well, here we go. Let's fire it up. Oh, speaking of fire, Fire Merchants, self titled <laughs> record 1989. Not sure where I heard of Fire Merchants, probably on, on the show somewhere, on our show. Um, guitarist John Goodsall from fusion band Brand X. The dude's just a total shredder. Drummer Chester Thompson played on several ZAP albums. Yep, yep. uh, Like Roxy and Elsewhere, One Size Fits All, Studio 10, Sleep Dirt. This is fusion with a metal edge, which is why it came out on Enigma's metal label, Medusa. It's kind of like Alan Holdsworth meets Vinnie Moore. It's cool. I guarantee you Gin was into this. Um, There was a second album, too. Fire Merchants. Do you know them, Ryan? I don't. Okay, we'll get into it. I will. Uh, a recommend of yours, Ryan, I believe, five, eight. Oh, I don't recall that. I think is you that, did. Is that a recommend of mine? I'm pretty sure. I think you'll know why soon enough here. The album's, oh, called, album's called I Learned Shut Up, 1992, Sky Records, their third album. I think they're still going. They're an Athens band. I'm, I'm assuming that's why they came up on the show.
0: Oh yeah, man, there's too many bands, I can't remember. I know, yeah, yeah.
1: I know, yeah. Apparently there's a documentary about them coming out called Weirdo, or it might already be out, I'm not too sure. They kind of make, made me think of uh, that band Translator a little bit, or someone like that, like maybe the Brandos or something. They're just good, solid you know, rock. They don't fit neatly into any specific subgenre. Just a good rock band with excellent songwriting, amazing vocals. There's a song on here called God damn it, Paul! That should have been
0: a hit. Oh, what label is that on? Sky Records. Sky Records. Okay, man, oh man, I gotta, I gotta remind myself of my own recommends. Mm-hmm.
1: Fastbacks. If you want to slow down, step on the gas. Twenty eighteen on their own, no threes records. I love the fastbacks. I'm a completist. And recently, they've been going back into the archives and putting some amazing stuff out, which is just a treat for fans. This is one of the, the better of their more recent releases. It's rare tracks, circa 85 to 90. Like the others of these, it's a gatefold with amazing photos and flyers. The music is just phenomenal. They also have a new single out, uh, Kurt and Lulu and Kim, of course, with Mike Musburger on drums. Uh, so fingers crossed for a new full length. Uh, They do a Muffs song on that single. Also a new uh, release coming out of 1985 Demos this year on Hey Suburbia Records from the Fastbacks. And we need a Fastbacks book and or documentary (laughs) ASAP, please.
0: Yeah. Hey, uh, did you check out that latest Young Fresh Fellows record? I, I can't even remember whether I mentioned that to you. Toxic Youth? No. Oh, check it. I will.
1: Four Way Cross, and that's if you don't know, that's all kind of spelled together. Four-way cross. No, no space in between, in between the words. Self-titled, 1985, Motive Communications. This is their debut, cassette only, but reissued in 1988 on the label. Nate Starkman and Son. Biff Sanders, Courtney Davies, Steve Gerties, and Tom Dolan. It's kind of goth, post-punk, comparable to Early Killing Joke. Uh, Biff Sanders was the drummer and vocalist. Uh, He ran Motive Communications, a label, and uh, he went on to drum in Ethel Meatplow, who have an S.S. Tree connection we'll be getting to in a few weeks. Spoiler. Teaser, I guess. Teaser spoiler. Yep. Uh, The band, with all four original members reunited in 2016 and self-released four EPs, all of which are up on their band camp, and they're called Ruin, Risk, Fact, Fiction. Not sure about their their status currently, but Four Way Cross, check them out. Here's a couple for you, Ryan. I know you're you're a fan of both of these bands. Flop, Whenever You're Ready. Oh, yeah. 1993, Frontier Epic, their second record. Uh, My go-to is the debut, Flop and the Fall, of Mop Squeezer, which is the only one I, I really know. I was thinking about it this week, you know, because of Fastbacks, Flop, The Posies. That region has quite a history of like top-tier power pop bands, and mm-hmm. flop, flop is near the top, for sure. Fluff, Road Rage. Oh, yeah. 1998 Honest Dawns. This is their last record, or was their last. This is the band you actually got me into, uh, and we should start by mentioning guitarist, vocalist, songwriter, Otis Bartholomew, a.k.a. O, who passed away recently. Uh, I knew O growing up from seeing his photo credits in Thrasher and Transworld mainly um, and then his pre-Fluff band Olive Lawn who I know from like some ska- uh, Thrasher Skate Rock comps Volume 10 in particular they have a standout track on there uh, my go-to for Fluff uh, because it's the one you dubbed for me Ryan on one side of a 90 minute tape is Home Improvements I know you know their discography way better than I do but I was just rocking to this this week. Road Rage? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Probably my least favorite record of theirs, but it's still really awesome. Mm-hmm. All their stuff is great. And uh, they they had um, an EP after that one. It's called the Canary Training Record. Pretty hard to get, actually, but definitely worth tracking down. But their first three records all on... Uh, Actually, I think only the first two were on Headhunter. Their first two on Headhunter are just essential, essential.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, this Road Rage 1 is the only one that's up
0: for streaming. That's the only that's the why, reason why I listen to it. Ah, uh, Home Improvements and Man Gravy are classics. And and I would say uh, you should also check out like o had a band after called The Makeup Sex. They're worth checking out as well.
1: Hmm, there you go. Well, rest in peace. Oh, Uh, speaking of 90s bands, Ryan, that we just loved, Forbidden Dimension have a new one. I'm going to see them this Saturday. Oh, nice. It's their ninth full length, along with probably a dozen amazing singles or more. It's called Midnight Stew. And if you're listening to this and you've never heard Calgary's Kings and Queen of horror rock, you're in for a treat. Tom Bagley is incapable of writing a bad song, I would say. He's also a super underrated guitarist, in my opinion, and probably my favorite overall visual artist of all time. Uh, If you're new to the band, I would start for me personally with Somebody Down There Likes Me or Widow's Walk, but every album just rules. Yeah, agreed. This one's really good too.
0: Absolute classic Canadian garage horror rock of the highest order, and Tom can just write a song. Like, every song is so catchy.
1: Yep. Okay, the next one is a recommend of yours, actually, Ryan. Fred Schneider. Just Fred.
0: Oh, yeah. that Hey, that's good, man. It is good. That's good, good. Yeah. yeah.
1: 1996, Reprise, his second solo album, uh, obviously the B-52's co-vocalist. It's a recommend of yours and a good one. I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't know about this. Some cool collaborators. Tim Mosher wrote some of the songs, five of them, actually. And Tim plays guitar in what band, Ryan?
0: Uh, the Digits? Eh, junkyard. Who, who, what? Oh, Junkyard. Well, no, wait, Who not Rick Sims on that record? Is yeah, that who I'm thinking Rick of? Sims yeah, Rick okay, Sims is so, on it. I'm so getting Rick, to that. Rick Sims is on there in Shadowy Man. So what's the guy in Junkyard? Tim that Mosher. You, that you just anked me with? Tim Mosher. Is that the only band he's in, Junkyard? No, he's in
1: other bands, but. Okay. Uh, Fred is backed on some songs by Six Fing- Finger Satellite. Yes. Some by Shadowy Men. Yes. And some by Deadly Cupcake, which is Rick Sims. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Rick Sims, Russell Simmons of the John Spencer Blues Explosion, and Tim Zalaki of Tar. I'm not sure if I'm probably saying his last name wrong. Sorry. Um, but the songs are really good on this record.
0: Yeah, that's a great record. Love the B 52s.
1: Okay, here's a band I bet you're into, Ryan. Farside, Rochambeau.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, of course, man. That is a classic record, Rochambeau. Like for me, when I was getting into like the victory, uh, real hardcore, revelation type stuff, Farside came along and gave me Southern California melodic post-hardcore vibe that I was all over. Yeah, man. Well, uh,
1: podcast shout out to the Where It Went dudes, similar to that Bluebird EP. I got into this after their episode on the album. Great interview with vocalist Popeye Vogelsang and Jeff Codhill, who did the album art for this but was also in the band Game Face. This album is great. Definitely has an early 90s sound and feel, melodic, positive force vibes. It's got the breakdowns, but there's an acoustic guitar. And, you know, it's new, windy, it's really good. Um, they've already done the second album rigged on their show. So I, I'm definitely going to check that out. And as they say on their show, I'll send a bit of bow out to Greg, Javier and Jason.
0: There is a SS tree connection with that band Farside, as well, because if you check out their 1995 EP self-titled EP, but the CD version, they do a cover of hardly getting over it.
1: Oh
0: yeah, man. That's check cool. it out. Well, check I will,
1: because I I just love this record.
0: Yeah, this they're week. all good. It took so long for their final record to come out. I remember back in the day, again, before the internet, because uh, between Rigged and their last album, The Monroe Doctrine, it took so long. I remember asking at the record store like every time I went in, is the new side out? Is the new side out? For like three years, because all the zines kept on talking about how it was going to come out and then it just didn't forever, but it finally did. Okay. Last Ryan
1: in my 10 recent digestions for the letter F the fall grotesque after the Grom, uh, 1980. So I bought this magazine, Ryan.
0: Oh. oh, record collector. Yeah.
1: It's record. It's one of these like $20 magazine that, magazines that like does the whole discography and, you know, has little articles on each album
0: in order. Even the the back cover is all the fall. Yeah.
1: Oh, it does all the singles. It does reviews of all the books on the fall. It's got interviews with, you know, some of the band members. You kind of balk at the price of some of these, you know, they're 20, usually minimum 20 bucks, but it's kind of like buying a book.
0: Treasure trove of info too, right?
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to listen to every fall record and I'm on, I'm on grotesque. (laughs) At least the studio ones anyways, not the live ones.
0: Yeah. There's so many live Live. ones. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I'm, I'm kind of reading about each one and then, and then listening to that album, you know, three times or so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think of grotesque? It's pretty good. eh? It's
1: pretty good. Yep. Um, kind of, I, so I knew Witch trials live at the witch trials. I I already kind of knew that one. I had never heard Dragnet before. That one's good. It's pretty dark the magazine also puts like a, a a lot of focus on their singles which correct me if i'm wrong was kind of a big part of their legend and part a big part of like that, that prolific output of the fall was their singles
0: oh yeah they would and they'd spin off you know a 7-inch and a 12-inch especially in the 80s like a 7-inch and a 12-inch version of each of their singles and every album would have like four four singles. I, I mean, I really like the early, I like all fall. I think what I said last time when you asked me what are, what are the, what's my favorite fall record or whatever, I think I said, it's the one that I have on at any given time, but I really, I really like their early eighties output probably. And then their, their, their final few albums actually are the ones that I'm into the most recently. Their first ones are good. Like uh, live at the witch trials, dragnet, and then uh, grotesque. Um, they're good. But the, uh, the early eighties ones are the ones that really hook me in, you know? Yeah. Well, case in point
1: regarding the singles, the, the single that's kind of tacked on to this album, um, you know, is like a bonus track or whatever, how they'll do singles from that era, tack it onto the album. Yeah. is totally wired, which is actually their most streamed song. Wow. So, so obviously, you know, it's one of their bigger songs. Uh, this record's cool. Um, even the, the songs with Kazoo are pretty good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My favorite, I can't wait for you to get to uh, some of the, the 80s stuff like uh, Perverted by Language, Wonderful and Frightening World. My favorite song by The Fall is called Lay of the Land and Man, Oh Man. That's, that's such a wicked song. And the video is insane. Okay. Well, I'll watch for it. Lay of the Land. That's it, Ryan. That's all I have. What do you have? Cool, man. I have only got one band to talk about. Just one, not 10. Okay. But I have to turn you on to this band because I am obsessed with them for like the last few months. I actually sent you one of their videos not too long ago, but I haven't stopped being obsessed. So I have to spiel about this band called Number Girl from Japan. Do you know that band? Do you remember when I sent you that? Vaguely. Yeah. Vaguely. Okay. They're from, I think it's pronounced Fukuoka. Japan? Fukuka?
1: I think it's they Fukushima, f-
0: but go on. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Fukuoka Um, they formed in the mid-90s, and I just love them. And I wanna tell you why you need to check them out. They were formed in 95. Um, they're four members, and I'm gonna talk more about them in a minute here. Um, and I'm gonna butcher names all throughout this spiel, okay? So Shitoku Makai is vocalist and guitarist, Kentaro. Nakao on bass, Ahito Azawa on drums, and Hisako Tabuchi on guitar. Often described as sounding like the Pixies or Sonic Youth or Husker Du. Not wrong, okay? It's not wrong. And especially on their first album. Their first album, it was uh, independently released to start 1997. It's called School Girl Bye Bye. Definitely has that mid-90s, heavily influenced by Pixie, Sonic Youth, Husker Du sound. It's jangly indie rock. It's a great record, but they were really just getting started. It's actually a pretty subdued record when you you listen to their later ones compared to this first one. Their hit, if you can call it that, is called Omoid In My Head. And uh, there's another track on there that I love called Mini Grammar. Some songs could maybe even be... Uh, compared to maybe like The Wedding Present or something. It's just really great, jangly indie rock from the mid-90s. The highlight for me, and it's kind of foreshadowing their later albums that I really want to turn you on to, is uh, Shotoku's Telly. He plays it clean and really noisy and jangly, and it just gets more insane as the records go on. Um, They followed up that record with 1999's Schoolgirl Distortional Addict, This was their first one for a major on uh, Parlophone. Better production and playing comes through. It is a huge leap forward from their first record, although it still is very firmly in that indie rock genre. Um, But it's getting noisier while staying melodic. Uh, Shotoku's telly, again, is a highlight, but also Ahito's drumming and Hasako's guitar really start to shine through. The production is really showing off the band members playing now and the songwriting, and Kentaro's, like, he's got, he plays this Maserite bass, and i got to tell you more about Kentaro in a minute here, but he plays this Maserite bass. It's just this grinding, growling rumble under everything. Just awesome. But they are on this second record getting more angular, more atonal. With Ehito's drumming, you can also hear him start to sound a little bit kind of like Stuart Copeland, like he's got serious, serious chops, right? Um, And then Shotoku's Scream, he's got this amazing Scream guitar playing, kind of sounding a little bit Frank Black-esque. Some of these songs on this record, though, could start to sound like you might find them on an Amphetamine Reptile record from the 90s, though. Um, I can't name many songs. There, a lot of them are in Japanese. Um, but their next record, 2000's Sapukai, or Sapukai, was another huge leap forward. Super technical writing compared to their prior records. And it's indie noise rock interspersed with screaming, reggae, and dub. It's just a masterpiece for me. I can't stop listening to it. And you can also hear Hisako's melodies, Better than before with uh, with all of the different pedals. Definitely, you can hear where she maybe can compared with kind of Sonic Youth type of guitar playing, but just with like some really screeching Sonic Youth noise as well. But this record, Sepulchre, they're also combining like free jazz saxophone, piano, more reggae and dub. Still firmly rooted in indie noise rock, but for me, this record, when I hear it, I'm like, where was this record for the last 20 years? The Some of the songs on it, some of them are uh, written out in English on it. Urban Guitar, Sayonara, Tattoo, Trampoline Girl, just awesome. But then you get to their last record, which was another huge leap forward, 2002's NUM Heavy Metallic. And for me, just like Sapokai, another masterpiece, has all the prior elements but now it's just even more er experimental sounding there's very little trace of the band on that first record schoolgirl bye bye from 1997 there's just such a huge evolution in their sound Um, it's much more avant-garde now and there's even some traditional japanese melodies interspersed some super heavy tracks that almost sound like helmet at times like on this song manga sick but then they have these songs that transform into spacey dub sounding uh, songs like Inazini or Fusigi. I Again, I'm butchering all these song names, but I want you to check these out. Unfortunately, the band broke up in 2002 and I just discovered them now, you know, 20 years over 20 years later. Uh, but if, thankfully, many of the members went on to other projects that are worth checking out. Here is a recommend for you, in addition to the band Number Girl, and especially their last two records, Brandt, but this band that Shotoku went on to, um, he actually started it with Ahito, the drummer, called Zazen Boys, or Zazen Boys, Z-A-Z-E-N. Oh, did I hear the pen click? Yeah. There we go, boy. Zazen Boys, just insane spaz jazz rock you got and you know from japan so it's going to be killer spaz jazz rock is my love language man yeah exactly <laughs> zazen boys you gotta check that out man kintaro he went on to a number of bands there's a, an excellent indie pop band that he was in called sloth love chunks my favorite band post number girl by kintaro is called crypt city here's a recommend for you Brent. 2011's crypt city record self-titled but check out the song body snatchers you will love it in the best no means no way as well i'm sure uh kintaro was also in another killer band seagull screaming kisser kisser excellent band and uh hisako uh she also joined the bloodthirsty butchers another great band from japan bloodthirsty butchers Um, And she also formed her own band where she's a lead singer and kind of an indie pop band called Toddle. So there's just tons and tons of bands that these musicians from Number Girl uh, went on to that are totally worth checking out. I feel like it's I've been kind of living under a rock after discovering this band and then following their lineage all over the place. Thankfully, though, they did reform for a brief period of time in 2019 for a few years. There's some amazing live footage and this is the one that i sent you um, of them doing these two tracks at what are called the matsuri sessions it's kind of this outdoor amphitheater but there's no audience one called omoid in my head and that's spelled o-m-o-i-d-e omoid in my head and another song called tattoo check those out and just see how much of an absolute killer band these guys are um but definitely in addition to those recommends check out their last two records sapukai and num heavy metallic gotta check those out i want to hear back i'm on it man cool number girl where have they been for 20 years man just sitting there waiting for you to discover them yeah i feel like if i get more into bands from japan i'll never come back yeah i hardly scratched the surface and i spent like the last you know four nights there (laughs) <laughs> getting getting ready for the show, I was like, oh my God, my bank account is going to hate me for this. But, oh well, it's money well spent, right? Yeah, your ears are going to love you for it. That's right. Speaking of what my ears love, how about we get into this EP?
2: Mm-hmm. History lesson, part one.
0: All right, Brant. Finally, finally, we've got someone from Dinosaur Jr. on the show. We have had Dinosaur Jr. on the show a few times now. We had them... First, on episode 130, the You're Living All Over Me LP, where we did a deep dive into the band's history. So people should go and check that out and get primed for this episode. We also, on uh, episode 152, the Little Fury Things EP, we had Maura Jasper on, which was awesome. Um, and we'll talk more about Mora later on in the episode here, because she did the artwork and the video for this uh, EP. We also uh, had... Episode 216, The Bug LP, where we had Paul Coldery on the show. And then most recently, Episode 220, The Freak Scene EP, where we had Philip Reichenheim on the show, which was a killer interview. This is Episode 244. And don't worry, if you love this EP as much as I do, you're going to listen to this all over again and a bunch of those other songs on the Fossils LP, uh, the Comp LP Ah, uh, two seventy-five. So we're going to be back on these tracks in another thirty or so episodes. To kick us off, we've got Lou on the show, bass player, vocalist for the band. And then, of course, all our all our listeners will know that uh, together with Lou in Dinosaur Junior at this time was Murph and Jay Maskus.
1: Mm-hmm. Their third single for SST, Ryan, like you mentioned, which is odd for the for the label. They weren't really big on singles. They seemed to prefer. 3-inch CDs, as we've noted, (laughs) uh, or 12-inch EPs. Uh, This, of course, was released in every format under the sun, but also on 7-inch, which is is odd.
0: Yeah, they went full merch on this one. You can get it on 7-inch in many colors, a maxi single, a CD EP with two extra tracks, 3-inch CD, 10-inch on many colors, including marble. You can also get it as a cuss single a twelve-inch with a spray-painted cover. I couldn't find out much about that one. It looks like I don't know if you found out anything about that one. I, it looks
1: like I assume those are just test pressings or something, or prom- yeah, promos, radio station promos or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the the uh, the only version that I have as like a standalone SST version, I have the twelve-inch with the uh, the etched B-side, which we'll have to talk about later as well.
1: Yeah, Rhino also did a record store day seven-inch. I don't know when, probably in the last five to 10 years with Dinosaur Jr.'s version on one side and the Cure side on the
0: other. Oh yeah. One of those splits. Yeah. It's yeah. also, it was also re-released in that Numero box set, Visitors, which we'll, uh, we'll reference later on as well.
1: Yeah. And it came out in Germany on normal on 12 inch and seven inch and in the UK on Blast First on 12 inch, seven inch, 10 inch. And I think that's the CD version, the Blast First version with the, the two extra tracks. The two extra tracks, okay. I, I don't think it's on any of the SST versions. Oh, okay. With, with the bonus tracks.
0: There you are being a purist again.
1: <laughs> Whilst I'm just sparing us getting corrected online. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, we've kind of already covered, you know, the the history, I guess, of of Dinosaur Jr. during this era, on uh, especially on the bug episode. So why don't we kick it over to Lou and then we'll chat some more after that. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Lou Barlow. Lou, thanks for being on the show. No worries. Okay. So, yeah, (laughs) let's start at the start, Lou. You were born in Dayton, Ohio. You lived for a while in Jackson, Michigan, and at some point you moved to Westfield. Yep. That's where you went to high school in Westfield? Yeah, it is. Geographically, how does Westfield relate to Amherst?
2: It's, it's about 25 miles south
1: Were you and Scott Helen the only punk rockers in your high school?
2: Uh, just about. Yeah. Yeah, there was, I mean, uh, his brother was kind of a punk rocker, Scott's, but he was also kind of a metal guy too. They ended up becoming, they ended up forming a speed metal band after Scott Helen left Deep Wound. Um. They were great. They were. They actually were a punk band called Outpatients. Right. Scott's brother. And they were great. They were. They were the best. Best <laughs> band. And before that, uh, uh, they were a Motorhead cover band. Scott was not in that band, but there was a first show I ever saw. in The cafeteria of our high school was a Motorhead cover band. With <laughs> Scott, Helen's brother it was amazing. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, if you want to play in a punk band, that's a good primer, right?
2: <laughs> it's a good. It's a really good place to start.
1: Yeah. And you you started playing guitar first. That was your first instrument.
2: Yeah, I started playing guitar when I lived in Michigan when I was a kid. I sort of had forced lessons, you know, at the age of seven or so. And then uh, I kind of t- I took to it after a few years. I had a really good teacher in uh, middle school. I had, I had I was able to ha- have have a music class instead of go to gym. And this wonderful teacher taught this entire. there's probably like seven of us, and he taught us all how to play stairway to heaven when we were like 11 it was amazing this was in school yeah Yeah. it was amazing because he i mean he had us all do it i mean he we learned dust in the wind and stairway to heaven like real super very very slow so we could get our little fingers around it but it pretty much uh that's when that's when it got fun for me the guitar got really fun i'm picturing like you know nylon
1: strained classical guitars though totally yeah
2: yep you, there's no way we could <laughs> so, it'd be really hard to do the steel string of our little fingers would just get shredded but uh no it was really cool the teacher was like really really inclusive and really encouraged everyone to play and that was a real that really uh that really set me in well, that's that really put me on the right path i think
1: hmm so you were probably like a classic rock kid at that point
2: not really no? i had a i had no interest in Led Zeppelin or anything like that I liked pop radio and I was starting to like the Beatles cuz he taught he taught us how to play girl by the Beatles that's then I got really interested in that so I I got into the Beatles but okay. that was
1: <laughs> okay so by the time you get into high school or get into punk rock who introduced you to punk rock or how did you get into it
2: uh i kind of stumbled upon it i moved to mich i moved from michigan to massachusetts when i was 12 and uh i was i just loved radio so i would just go up and down the dial looking for things and i i found college radio on the left of the dial i heard i heard uh, holiday in cambodia by the dead kennedys and i was just absolutely floored by that and then because of where we are where where I live, like sort of geographically, there's tons of colleges, so there was tons of college radio, and I so I heard, I heard a lot of stuff really early on. Like I heard Joy Division when they were still kind of a current band, and I heard The Cure and a lot of post punk, a lot of new wave, a lot of really cool, really funny local, kind of bar band punk, uh, and I found out about shows that way, so I was able to. Yeah, I don't know, it was just college radio, all about college radio. And we had a, you know, we had a local record store. We there was one record store in Northampton, which is kind of in between Amherst and Westfield that sold that sold great records, you know, sold really cool indie records and imports. So did bands come to Westfield? No, they didn't go to Westfield. They did go to Northampton. There was a and Amherst actually. There was a I didn't see that was actually underage. I couldn't go to but uh there was a there wasn't the first show I real the first big show I went to it was not big but it was a local it was a Sunday matinee at a local porn theater and there was four or five local punk bands and like one that sounded like the Clash one that sounded like the B52s and one that was actually kind of a proto hardcore band hmm. and this would have been in 1981 or so and I uh that was amazing Do you remember the bands the names Yeah yeah the Section 8 who were they were actually a spin-off band from this band called the Vandals that were from Westfield but they, they the Vandals turned into uh, section 8 and there was a band called Pajama Slave Dancers and a band called The Stupids yep and they were they were great DUH Stupids <laughs> they were great
1: <laughs> and uh, that's like the proto hardcore band
2: yeah, yeah they were crazy they almost it was almost it's almost a bit like the plasmatics, mm. but even, but, but cruder, you know, cause plasmatics were actually making, they were making the rounds at that point on TV. And so you could, they were kind of exciting, but they were, I would say they were metalish. but, uh, this band, the stupids were definitely more, uh, more of like a real grinding power chord band yeah. and much yeah. faster. And they also had a member of the, of the vandals. The, it wasn't that band. So anyway, it was all kind of these bands that had splintered off this one band called the vandals. Right.
1: So okay uh was deep wound
2: your first band yeah yep scott and i started jamming with a kid with a couple of, like one other kid from our high school he sang and then we had a kid around, who, around the corner who would literally play boxes and pots and pans <laughs> with us and that so that was that was cool i think I i think initially i was probably like 14 late late in my like 14 scott was probably 13 and then uh we found jay when i was 15 and scott was 14
1: mm-hmm. i'm laughing because i had a similar experience with uh but we had microphones under cardboard boxes that was our drum kit nice
2: <laughs> that's cool
1: <laughs> and uh when you say jay you're you mean jay mascus obviously yep. but your first singer yep. was also named jay
2: he was jay, yep. jay otto and he had a, he was very shy. And when we did the, uh, we did our first show with Jay on drums and Jay singing, and uh, poor Jay was just mortified, and he hid behind a tree. We were playing outside, and and then Jay, Jay was like, "We gotta fire him." <laughs> Probably secretly relieved, I'm, I'm guessing. He might have been. I was bummed because Jay, Jay had a J A Y had a really great guitar amp that I was using so, we
1: <laughs> so it's always um, hard to kick out a member that has like the jam space or whatever right
2: yeah he had a really cool this super cool little combo amp that was like loud and sound it was just this wonderful roaring amp I don't even know what kind it was it just sounded great I have old I have old tapes of that stuff too and I'm still like god what was that fucking amp it was great <laughs> um
1: any idea any guesses on how many shows Deep Wound played
2: I heard 9. Yeah. That's what Jay says.
1: Okay. Oi, so, I've read anyways that you can tell me if this is true that Oi was an early influence. Like were you getting those I records? I was
2: Oi. No. no. Jay was super into Oi. Like when I met him he had suspenders and Doc Martens. <laughs> and uh we like Scott and I were really I had I had discovered mail ordering domestic hardcore records. So I had I was mail ordering, mail ordering Discord and Touch and Go records, and a lot of stuff from the West Coast, like Circle Jerks and Agent Orange. And uh, when we met Jay, Jay just had this amazing import collection. So he played us, he played us Oi records and Discharge, mm. which were, and there was all, there was other bands like uh, Chaos UK, Disorder, like really amazing, crazy, noisy. They weren't oi, they were like I guess it was probably the origins of crust punk, yeah. Yep. So Jay had a lot of imports, we had a lot of domestic records, and we yeah, we just uh we became a band and we listened to records together and practice.
1: Okay, I want to ask you about some of the shows, some of these nine shows. So okay. Tell me, yep. tell me what you remember about these shows, if anything, or what stands I out to you? I
2: remember almost nothing. I remember them being extreme. I remember being extremely nervous. <laughs> okay. And I... You know, so I... The shows were fun. It was really fun to be a part of, because they, they were. There was... The, the shows were generally matinees, and there was a lot of bands that played, and it was... And Jay hooked up all the shows, you know, he, he really was like really motivated and got it. he, uh, I think he wrote letters to like the FU's from Boston. So we got to open for the FU's at a Elks Hall or something in Boston. That was our first trip to Boston. Really exciting. I mean, we had a, it was, I mean, I, it was a blur for me as far as playing, but, was, but being at those shows was just, it was so cool. You know, yeah. it was exciting. It was really exciting.
1: You found your tribe, I'm guessing, you know?
2: Kind of. I mean, I didn't really like, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I didn't. Because I mean, yeah. even even within my band, it was like, I, we weren't like, uh, Jay was really like, uh, I don't know, like, I, I kind of thought that hardcore would be like, hey, a big, like, fun gang. I mean, just from what I, and, and everyone would be really welcoming, but it wasn't really quite like that. Uh, and I was very, very shy. so uh, but the bot in the Boston hardcore scene, like all the bands like SSD control, dys, the fus were a little bit different, but, SSD and, and DYS were extreme. They were, like, violent. <laughs> and, and they are all, like, hockey players. Yeah,
1: very macho and, scene. Hey. And, oh,
2: God, you had to really, you had to steer clear of them. I slammed once at a Dead Kennedy show, and I almost got killed. And I was like, I'm <laughs> never doing that again. <laughs> like, and I never did. So every every show that I went to after that, I would, I'd find, like, a perfect place either to hide on the side of the stage between the PA and the stage so I could fend off anyone flying at me. And, uh <laughs> You know, I just I found the safe places to be so I could wear my glasses and watch the shows.
1: <laughs> okay, well, you played at Guiding Light or Guiding Star Hall in Greenfield, so I'm assuming yeah. Greenfield's a bigger, a little bit bigger city, maybe or or
2: town. No, it's no? not. It was no. It's uh, I live here. Now. I live in Greenfield now, oh. uh, and it's funny because I my, there was a period where my kids' talent shows were happening at the Greenfield. <laughs> But, but I think what what happened was there was a kid here, in Greenfield who went he went to this uh, school called Northfield Mount Hermon like this pretty, happening, private school. But he uh, he had a band called Brain Injured Unit and he started his dad was a member of the Grange and he could rent the hall for like twenty bucks. Oh well, wow. and that guy he actually, so he started renting the hall for the twenty twenty bucks and setting up these incredible shows like with local bands but then also like super amazing national acts like FU's, Big Boys, and they've and Crucifix from San Francisco came through, and Vatican Commandos, and wow. so a lot of really great, really pulled in a lot, the guy actually became a really successful independent promoter, like he's, I think he primarily booked neurosis after mm. after a couple of decades, that was his kind of thing, and he, he lives in San Francisco, but he, uh, his name is Todd Cody, but he booked, oh
1: I know Todd,
2: yeah, uh, yeah, he, you know Lee Todd, Yep. Oh wow, that's cool! Yeah, he totally, yeah, he booked he booked those first shows, and he wrote he wrote uh, Deep Wound. Of, when we put out our first cassette, he actually wrote Jay a little fan letter and was like, you know, we should play, and we did. And so, he, so just yeah, Todd set up these early. Oh, that's wild! I bought lots of shows from Todd over yeah. the years. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Okay, yeah, yeah he's everybody knows him. That's yeah, she-
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's something that came out of the punk scene that you don't hear about a lot. You hear about people, obviously. Getting music careers, writing, photography, et cetera. But a lot of promoters and, and uh booking agents and stuff got their start just like booking halls, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. It's true. I mean they, they, they had the they had the gumption. Yep. Had the wherewithal and they also had the dads, I guess. Apparently <laughs> they, they were part of these they were part of these old men's clubs that we could that could you could book the halls, right? But, yeah. At least
1: one time anyways, maybe not a yeah. second time.
2: No, we had a bunch of show at the guiding range yeah it was amazing at the guiding st- it was guiding no that was there was several like i mean it was like it was a spot and and yeah no one blew it no one ever Smashed nothing really toilet. bad happened <laughs> no that never happened i mean it was those were i mean if you look back if i look back on it i remember an innocence to it even when like ssd control came through it wasn't like they fucked. they didn't fuck it at all up you know what mm-hmm. i mean the only band that was truly scary was flipper <laughs> <It> was like <laughs> When those guys like came they came, you know, tumbling out of their van, you're like, Holy shit, like they showed up really late and played this. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah, it was incredible, yeah. but they were they were scary.
1: <laughs> okay, one of those shows you played with Siege and you, you read and you know, looking back now, historically in like a metal history and stuff, Siege gets credited really credited for their speed and being an influence on, you know, grind bands and stuff like that. Deep wound yeah. also. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering who was faster, Siege, Deep Wound, or the Neos?
2: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, they're all different. Like the, the the bands. I mean, Siege had the real oompa beat, so they were fast for sure. They were kind of like outcast to the scene because, like, the the Boston bands didn't think they were cool. the Boston bands were super cool. Yeah, and if you were I and mean, and it was kind of clicky to a degree. And siege were just like total nerds. I mean, they, they were so funny. Like they would just. There's a wonderful. I'm sure you've seen it. This that wonderful cable access footage of them playing. You ever seen that? Yeah, I've seen. That. <laughs> it really is exactly. I mean, they had their jeans pulled real high, and they <laughs> and they would just went absolutely apeshit. Like they were really funny and really happy. But I, yes, they did play once, and I saw the. I think it was the guitar player got shocked and like it was at the guiding range and or guiding star range he got shocked and flew backwards like he, it was it was wild they were great yeah. and we did actually like in uh people in western mass really embraced siege like we were definitely like there was a lot of kids here who were like all about siege and then when they got really big yeah later later on i was really I was like whoa, siege i was like when they actually became kind of a thing and then when i went back and actually listened to their stuff. On, I think that record, the recording of that tape they did, is fantastic. It's like really powerful. <laughs> yeah. So.
1: Yeah, another recording from that era that sounds really good is a, like that last right single. So let's talk about that oh, yeah. for a little bit. Was there something about that song, Chunks? That was there a there reason was, you picked that song?
2: I would. I mean, Jay picked it, and I would say that it was probably because it was very Oi influenced. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Jay really liked that. He really liked. There was what was the, there was a band in D.C. called Iron Cross that were kind of similar, that like bands that kind of went for this oi, the oi feel, uh, Iron Cross being one, and then Last Rights for that one single that they did. Yeah. Um, um. But that was that was kind of Jay's deal. I mean, I I you know I never oi was fun, but I never actually never bought the records, and I was I got really into I was just I was really into very very fast bands like I, that's just what I was into.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, when you listen to that deep wound record, like "Lose Anxiety" song, for example, Jay's pretty much playing blast beats in that song.
2: Yeah, he's he had a he had a really unique. We kind of got. It's funny when we first started, we were a little slower and kind of this really cool gallop. We were like, Dum, we had a real cool gallop, but there was this this uh, imperative to become faster and faster. And uh, but Jay never. He, I think Jay really felt very strongly that doing the Oompa beat like, was cheating. So he had, he had a really, uh, idiosyncratic way of riding the hi-hat and playing the snare. It was kind of, uh, unique and he played a lot of fills, but he was hard to follow. <laughs> it, was, it became harder to follow because it, we just were just be, We got so fast and then our singer couldn't really sing on time either. And then, uh. It was crazy i never thought we were that good i I do now listening back to the records i understand that it's all the idiosyncratic stuff the stuff that kind of set us apart from the other bands is kind of what made us unique you know i understand that now but at the time I, i i was very i was like oh no the really great bands are you know poison idea and uh the kreutz and the neos and I mean, the Meat Puppets were kind of a... They were, they were very fast, like, mm-hmm. initially. They were to but they were doing the... Yep. And I don't know.
1: Okay, you played another show in Greenfield with the big boys. What do you remember about uh, that show?
2: I was the best show ever. I just—I was, like, right up front and just fucking beaming the whole time. And it was wonderful. They were just... They were such a... It was kind of stylistically, they had they had just done the lullabies help the brain grow record and it was a very like it was cool because it was it had elements of post-punk it was melodic it was slower they were not a hardcore band they were really just this really kind of a proto-indie band i would say just in certain ways and they were you know they probably had more in common and we were also really starting to really get into mission of burma and and some of like bands that I would say that were college rock bands that had been around a little bit before hardcore, but had, but who were still, you know, hardcore friendly, Yeah. so. That's cool. You
1: know, you hear so much like people looking back saying that the people that were into hardcore just shunned everything that everything else. Right. And so.
2: Yeah, you could say, I mean, but I mean, there was, I mean, if you had, if, if the me, I mean, for us, I think, I think the real beacons were, uh, Minutemen, men meet puppets and black flag to a degree too and they changed i mean because none of these bands these bands were all and husker do too they embraced change yeah. you know so and they were all changing and like you you couldn't you really couldn't keep up with them you could go see them play and they were already playing their next record that you hadn't heard yet yeah. and uh so they were really i think those were really the bands that really I mean, and they were so incredible live. Like, the Minutemen, it was just such a joyous experience, and the big boys were a joyous experience. Uh, I mean, just really, and the big boys especially were, like, very, they really engaged the crowd. They were so much, they were just so friendly, and it was it was a wonder, it was great. Yeah.
1: Okay, also on that show was Pajama Slave Dancers, who you mentioned. They were a local band? Tell me about that. Oh, them. yeah. What oh, was, they oh. were,
2: uh, well, they... <laughs> They mutated out of the van, the the Vandals. Actually, the Westfield had, we kind of had the the punk bands. I don't know why, because Westfield was not really. I mean, Amherst and Northampton were where the colleges really were, and where the where the halls were, the places to play. But uh, Westfield turned out that we had this one band, the Vandals, and a band called the Selected Few, and they became Junior Hostesses, and then Junior Hostesses became. The junior hostesses in section eight or became eighth Army section eight became eighth army and then when Eighth Army dissolved, Junior Hostesses and Eighth Army came together and developed and became the pajama slave dancers, who were just this extremely funny local punk band. And they I mean they weren't hardcore, they were funny, they sang real topical songs about local shit, you know, like they, they had a really funny song called The Valley Advocate about our local free paper. And it was like, ballet kid, didn't know hippies could type. And we all loved that. We thought that was hilarious. And they would just, they went crazy. When they played shows, they just went absolutely crazy. And I remember getting drop kicked in the chest by Steve, the guitar player. And and they could also play. And they were they were fun. They were a bit older than the hard, like us hardcore kids. And they weren't hardcore. And they all got drunk. <laughs> they, were, they were all like hammered whenever they played. So they were just having a great time. They were just having a really good time. And we were... And that was at a point when all of all us kids were pretty serious was were, were ultra serious and they were not and it was great
0: and they were really they were really
2: fun they, they did a they were yeah everyone has great we all had great memories of that band and they were you know
1: and I still know those guys so okay you played another one in greenfield you mentioned crucifix SSD dys who seemed to be around quite a bit yeah uh outpatients so that's cool I yeah oh god yeah they i wasn't I wasn't sure if you, if outpatients and deep wound were around at the same time
2: or if it oh yeah, later. we were now Scott did double duty, I think at some of those shows Scott would be Scott would play bass with the outpatients and deep wound um yeah, we were like the outpatients were great, and they weren't quite they they weren't quite super fast, they weren't real super fast hardcore they were melodic. Like I said, they came they came out of like being a motorhead cover band. So they they had the chops, they had and they were really they were awesome. They were they were they were kind of the be- they were kind of the best band at a lot of those shows, even with like SSD and DY I loved DY DYS. They were they were fantastic. They they just were totally ape when they played. Big strong it was such a s SSD and DYS were such strong physical like presences on stage, just roaring and they had great amplifiers too. They were all like they all had marshals and shit, so it was just like just full on roar. I mean, it was just it was fantastic. Yeah.
1: Okay. Also on that crucifix show was all white jury. Oh yeah, that was that was that. Was,
2: that was, they were our local Oi band.
1: Hmm. Uh, I've seen pictures of Murph from that era, and he's like rocking the suspenders and a like was Murph yeah. a, was Murph a badass?
2: Murph was Murph was a partier. He wasn't really a badass, and he wasn't really into He wasn't fully a punk either. He was into everything. Um, but he was the drummer for All White Jury. The singer was Simon, who was from outside. He was from Boston, and he was going to UMass, and he had a, an incredible mohawk and great Doc Martens. And uh, they went, oi. They were like, oi. And, uh, and the guitar player was from the Vandals. So again, it was like they were kind of like... Uh, yeah, they were they were just our, our local mid tempo band. They weren't really aspiring to this sort of blur, you know,
1: that we were. You played one at the channel in Boston with, I have to
2: ask, about DOA. DOA and Toxic Reasons. Yep. That was really that was a big that was a really big deal. Um I didn't we didn't meet them. Toxic Reasons are actually from Dayton where I'm from, mm. where I was born. But uh yeah, the DOA and Toxic Reasons were on their national tour, and we opened for them at the Channel. I don't remember much about the show, to be perfectly honest. I, like I said, those I was so nervous <laughs> when we played, <laughs> but we made it. We made it out there and out there and back, you know. So,
1: okay, I want to ask you about some of this bands on this poster I saw for a Rock Against Racism, which is so like classic '80s hardcore. This was in Northampton. There was some bands on there I've never heard of, like No More Silence.
2: I don't know if we played that show. Hmm. That might not have happened because there's even there's flyers that are floating around a bus opening for the Circle Jerks, and that never happened. Either. Oh, it didn't happen. Yeah, I don't think we played. I don't think we played The Rock Against Racism. I could be wrong, and I because I don't that well, I don't that name doesn't ring a bell to me either. What else? What other bands were on the bill?
1: Um, Black Xmas.
2: Oh, Black. Oh, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> they for from stand <laughs> Yeah, Black Christmas. They were. Yeah, there was there was some really funny. Uh, there were a couple bands from the East Hampton area, that, and they, the kids were young. They were like really young. They could barely play. They were awesome. It was really fun, fun, funny, and yeah. Uh,
1: there was a band called Abuse. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's like a, a who's who's of the of the short lived east hampton area hardcore bands
1: Can- cancerous <laughs> growth
2: yeah oh they were from boston i think they were from boston yeah. they were kind of one of they were sort of one of these uh, outcast boston bands kind of like siege mm-hmm. there was another band called psycho from boston too That were also they they're from the, the the burbs i think i mean they all were from some suburb of boston but yeah i think they would just weren't they weren't they weren't in the scene they weren't in the x claim scene the mm-hmm. The straight Edge. I like
1: the I like this name too. Public disturbance.
2: Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I don't know if we played that. Show.
1: <laughs> Were you working at the old folks' home while this was going on already?
2: No, no. I was going to school. I was I was in high school. Oh was, yeah, yeah. I didn't really. Uh, I was del- I was delivering papers. That was my job back then. <laughs> I I got a job delivering for the springfield republican which actually made me money that was that was great so when i when i did the westfield evening news i no one would pay me and then <laughs> i got, when I, got a, when I was delivering the springfield republican uh everyone pl- paid through the mail so i would get i would actually get a paycheck every week so i was able to buy it. that's when i started to be able to really buy records right
1: so. do you still have all your hardcore records a lot of them yeah
2: yeah, yeah i didn't I's the only one I ever I think one of the only ones I sold was a Rosemary's Baby 7 inch which was stupid because those things are really expensive. And <laughs> I, I never I never fully understood the importance of the the Misfits to be honest, so I I, I missed out on that. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, is there any truth to this session you did like a recording session or whatever with Gerard Cosloy on vocals towards the end of Deep Wound? Do you remember anything about that?
2: No. I mean, we—he became our manager. He mm-hmm. was going to be our manager, and we did do one last studio session at Downtown Sounds. <clears throat> Downtown Sounds had a a little studio in the in the basement, and it had one of those awesome—I don't—I don't know if they're task cams. It could be a task cam, but they had the reel-to-reel inside of the board. There were like eight tracks with like the the, the reels inside the board, and we did a song called. Anatomy is Destiny, which was very influenced by Iron Iron Fist by Motorhead. That was our, we did do the session, but then the tapes got lost and never got released.
1: Oh, yeah. But
2: but it was a fun session because we really all really collaborated on it and did these really funny backing vocals, and it was fun. And Gerard was around. He was around, that's true.
1: Okay, this this uh, chunk song that you recorded it was done at Fort Apache by Sean Slade. So I'm just guessing, and I'm not sure if you remember, but I'm guessing it was done during the Bug sessions.
2: It, it was separate from that. We did it as expressly for as a like a session for B sides because mm. we did. Uh, I think we might have actually done we might have done Last Rights, Just Like Heaven, and then we did a. We had we, we contributed to a Neil Young compilation and a Birds compilation. I believe we did all those songs together. And this was at Fort Apache. This was at the Fort Apache South. Hmm. So it was kind of like the rougher Fort Apache. And we that was just one session we did. I believe that was just one session. It was all just like for the purpose of like B sides and compilations.
1: Yeah, and that's you singing obviously on chunks. Yeah. What do you know about the song Throwdown? Throwdown? Yeah. You mean the... Uh, you mean the... Di- the Dinosaur Jr. song, Throwdown. Oh, is
2: that just like Jade's solo? Wait, it, it
1: sounds remember. like it,
2: yeah. I think it might be... Or we or we did do it. I can't remember. But yeah, that was part of that all that shit, too. Yeah. Throwdown, throwdown. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. I don't I don't remember exactly but we didn't have a whole lot of like extra tracks but that was one of them.
1: Just like heaven was apparently recorded for a comp of like covers or something on Blast First. Do you do you have any idea what what comp that would have been? No. No.
2: I mean, I just know that we did it and then it was like became a big deal and became its own own thing. Yeah. Know? Like right away. Even though the funny thing is we did the we did the song and we got we got to the second chorus, and we we actually had a full length of it, and then we were we were all listening to the playback, and we're like, it it, it sucks after the second chorus. Let's just cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, it, it sucked. I don't know why we thought it sucked. I think maybe it, the tempo flagged or something, so so we just were like, literally took out fucking... Razor blade and cut it. <laughs> yeah, you
1: can tell it's not like the
2: band stopping on a dime or whatever. Oh, no. it's, it was just it's like cut. it's done. It's not good. It was like it's as good as it's gonna get. Bam! And then uh, <laughs> it's funny too because that, that it. It's funny how that became like the real definitive. That became real X factor of that tune was just the fact that we did just cut it.
1: <laughs> Is that how you do it live?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Totally.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, I know you still play it. I mean, you played both it we play and play it all the time. We Yeah, played
2: every fucking show. There's Do you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I
2: can't. I don't. I can't even think of a show that we haven't played. We didn't play it unless we got cut short or something. There's no. We play it all the time. Never. It always play it.
1: What about chunks? You played it on the the most recent live record.
2: Yeah, I mean, we play that a lot. We don't. Well, not not as much. We started doing a deep wound song that kind of took took the place of chunks. Hmm. We started doing. Um, training ground from the first uh cassette we did and we actually we got to we we, we did that that was amazing we opened up for the Foo Fighters at Fenway and Scott Helen came to the show and he played bass and I I sang I sang as the lead singer and we did we did training ground at when it was the fucking best <laughs> I was like this is like and uh, Scott's uh, Scott's wife cut together this wonderful little montage. She took a bunch of his people had like done you know cell phone footage of it, so she took all this cell phone footage and matched it with like a really good, crisp like live recording of it, and made this wonderful little video of us playing training ground at Fenway. Ben- it's fucking, it's great. <laughs> I'm super into it.
1: I read that you and Murph kind of worked on Just Like Heaven together. And then Jay came in and kind of added all the guitars. Oh, we
2: kind of had to. We had to do that because I think after after you're living all over me, uh, Jay just went to New York. He's like, you know, fuck Amherst. I want to go where I want to go where the action is. So he went. He went. He started living in New York and going to Hunter College and hanging out with Sonic Youth. So a lot of it ended up like me and me and Murph practicing without Jay, which was actually very effective because when we <laughs> tried to practice with Jay, it was. We barely hear ourselves right. because he was so. He would just he would just face his amp towards us and like he would go behind his amp, <laughs> we we would just be like, oh, it was extremely difficult to lock. And I w- I had become really I think I had realized after our first dinosaur record I was like, wait a minute, rhythm sections are are meant to be like coordinated and yeah. sy- you know, <laughs> we need to be like we need to be synchronized. And I started because I started to really like dissect black sabbath records and i was like oh man the kick it the kick and the and the bass like really have to be together so uh when jay left to, to live in new york it kind of it gave uh and i knew jay's songs really well i was obsessed with jay's shit i thought it was great so i i uh i could really crack the whip like murph and i could really just be a, i could really crack the whip on murph and really we got really tight that way it was cool
1: yeah i mean You can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I, I when I listen to your bass playing, you you mentioned Motorhead earlier. Obviously, there's there's the tone, but Mm -hmm. also like it, and just watching you play, it seems like you're you're a guitar player playing bass.
2: Yeah, and for the band for sure, and that's what Jay Jay really wanted. That I mean, he he told me to play bass, and I was like, okay. And he was like, he went, and he's like, and the bass lines that he wrote, he was like, you got to i mean the 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 reference is Peter Hook and Lemmy, yeah, like that's it like that, that's that's where we're going, and I was like, cool, I mean, so I mean that's definitely the way, and that was actually you had to really attack that you couldn't thump along to Jay playing it yeah. like there was no way to even hear it I mean, it was just, and the what that would have taken, the firepower that I would have had to have to even be able to play just to thump along,
1: yeah
2: you're
1: playing bar chords too, I mean, like oh, like yeah, Lemmy no, did, you know.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely no, I'm definitely doing that. It's not mm-hmm. quite as I mean, people will come up to me and say, "All you're doing is playing chords." I'm like, "No, that's not all." <laughs> yes. Most of what I play is single chords, really, yeah, or yeah. single notes. But the way that I play, uh, it, it's probably difficult. It's difficult for people then to they can't they can't really figure out specifically what I'm doing. But yeah, I, I you know I don't I don't just play chords. That's for sure.
1: And you're rocking a, a Ricky too, just like, just like. Living. I did
2: back then. <laughs> well, my first, the first space I got with for dinosaur and is actually, was actually a, a Gibson grabber and I played it for half of your living all over me too. And then halfway through You're living all over me, I bought my first Rick. Mm. Um, so actually it's a lot of things that people think is a Rick, like in a jar raisins. That's not a Rick. It's a grabber.
1: Mm. So. I know Jay had his goth phase with his his Robert Smith hair and everything. Uh, I read that you were listening to this Cure record on tour quite a bit, just like Heaven.
2: Oh, yeah. Listen to fucking tons of Cure. What was it? Was that the Head on the Door record? I can't remember.
1: I think it was Kiss Me, Kiss Me.
2: Kiss Me. We yeah. lost... Oh, God. It was like... Yeah, Jay... Jay always decided what we listened to, and it was like... I mean, I love the Cure, so... But that was like the Cure going... I think my my favorite Cure record was 17 Seconds and Faith. But then but when they went they went kind of pop and Jay was way into it and we listened to it all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. So. And then you ended up meeting Robert Smith for this this famous photo shoot.
2: We did because we cuz the the cover of the the cover of Just Like Heaven like hit the, the UK indie charts and so whatever fucking magazine at, at sounds enemy melody maker i can't remember which one yeah, yeah they, they they sent us over to the cures practice warehouse they practice they were practicing in some fucking huge warehouse in london and we went there and have our picture taken with them <laughs> we watched them rehearse and then we played a show with them then we played like a festival like in belgium or some shit with them
1: yeah and robert loved your version of the
2: song i guess he did yeah yeah i'm yeah. i, I Jay was bummed because we were actually meant to play some big show with them a couple of years ago, and uh, we I I couldn't do it because I had already scheduled another tour with my other band. And but I think that was going to be like where we really met, where we sort of reconnected with them. And Jay was, uh, but I I couldn't do it. Hmm.
1: Okay. What do you recall about making the video for Just Like Heaven? I think Mora kind of shot it at her like she did yeah
2: more and megan it wasn't an amherst i think it was out in i think it was out in boston i thought we i thought she was going to art school in boston Mm -hmm. when we did it and we did it like at a little little studio sort of a setup out there shot it i mean on vhs obviously but uh yeah megan and maura were both there and
1: yeah we shot the video you're wearing leather gloves in the video which is super awesome
2: Wearing gloves and playing and coats. Wearing coats and gloves is like that's super cool. I don't know why.
1: I don't know why either, it just is.
2: <laughs> yes, it's cool. I remember when the when uh my bloody valentine first came out too, they did something where they're all wearing coats, so it's like goddamn. And even Oasis, like years later it was like I think the very first the video for Supersonic by Oasis is them in fucking coats. I'm like, it's still great. It yeah, still looks great. So.
1: <laughs> Okay, I want to ask you about some of the stuff you're doing now. You mentioned to me last week that you were in the studio. Is that stuff you can talk about? Is it, I'm, I'm assuming it's for Folk Implosion.
2: Yeah, that was actually just sort of a one-off. We uh, There's a compilation of kind of kids' era, the you know kids' soundtrack era material that John and I had recorded that is being released as a compilation on Domino Records, and Domino thought it would be a good idea if to get us into a studio with an actual band and sort of capture four or five songs and make it like a promo thing for whenever they, whenever they decide to put out this compilation. So we had, we had two days at Mitch Easter's studio, the Fidelatorium in Kernersville, North Carolina, John lives in Durham. So I was down there anyway, but we went to Mitch Easter's studio and like, I don't know, popped out of five, Full band versions of some old full Complusion songs. It was wow. cool. It was cool.
1: And Dinosaur Jr. has a tour coming up with Clutch and Red Fang. That's going to be a cool tour.
2: I said Red Fang to Jay the other day. He's like, I don't think they're doing it. I'm like, ah, goddamn. That that I'm excited. I don't. I have no. I didn't even. I don't know anything about Clutch at all. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I don't know. I just don't know Clutch. I've never. I don't know if I've ever heard of them or heard them but we're playing huge places and Red Fang I really dig. I'm really into Red Fang. Mm-hmm. We play, we played a show with them a couple of years ago and they were fantastic so.
1: Well, I have to say um, we've talked about this on our show before but ever since, you know, the band got back together, the reunion reunion albums just keep getting better and better and I think like Sweeping into Space is like as good as anything you've ever done and Garden I think might be one of the best songs that you've personally ever written. It might be the best Lou Bar- oh. Barlow song ever so, awesome thanks I'm uh, really hoping there's gonna be another dinosaur junior record uh
2: I don't know Jay I asked Jay a couple of weeks ago I was like so what's going on are you doing a solo record he's like it'll come out next year so okay
0: <laughs> I don't I don't know
2: I mean I was kind of I was usually yeah I don't know I was sort of thinking we should just make another one now but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know but that's I think it's up. I think Jay's definitely he's settling into a more relaxed uh, work cycle these days.
1: Yeah. So. Okay. Will there be a, a Sebado follow up to Act Surprised?
2: I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I can't. I can't. I can't even think about. <laughs> we. Last thing we did, we did Act Surprised, and then you know the whole the pandemic hit like halfway through that tour cycle. Kind of it kind of just put a pin in that and. uh, and they, we got the drummers in Florida now, and Jason's in Brooklyn, and I'm up here, and I
1: don't know how
2: the fuck we do that.
1: Yeah, tell everybody about your podcast, Wrong Raw Impressions. Wrong Impressions. Wrong
2: <laughs> <laughs> raw impression. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I'm, my wife, when we we met ten years ago, and she was like, "We need to do a podcast," and I'm like, "Oh my god, I'm like I can't do a podcast. That's too much work." And and I was right because it's a ton. I mean, because I we're making one, and I like I every pretty much every episode, like I'm making I make I make all the the interstitial stuff and the songs. I make them all on cassette four track, like the announcements, the I mean, narration, all this stuff. I I I incorporate four track and really try to I craft it more like a like a a radio show, and uh, so I base it off of my wife and I just shoot the shit, and then I. I crafted into these little episodes, and it's really fun. And we we're we were kind of in the middle of doing a little series on Deep Wound, which is pretty fun. I'm playing; I played songs I've never played and sang on acoustic for the for the. And my wife is like she usually kind of I've said this many times, but she kind of glazes over when I talk about the old hardcore days <laughs> pretty much only old hardcore guys are as amused by old hardcore as we are really i mean like you yeah. me <laughs> it's endlessly fascinating to talk about these shows but my wife though i think uh because i started to really tell her about the the band in a really personal way and she got kind of hooked on it and so we've got a uh, but we got one more episode we've definitely got another deep wound episode in us which we may do tomorrow
1: well i think it's a peek into the the mind of teenage lou barlow i think uh, that's what i found that she she probably liked about it from listening to it.
2: Yeah, I guess I, I mean, for me too, I didn't, I think I, a lot, a lot of times I like to think about my high school years. And I'm like, I don't know. It was a blur. I hated it. And then I'm like, Oh no, I had this whole secret life of being in this hardcore band that nobody knew. I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody in my school. I'm like, knew that I was in a band and, you know, you would just always hear kids like disguise like, yeah, man, we're jamming. I, you know, we figured out this Van Halen song and bragging about their guitar playing and shit. And I was like, Wow, I'm actually like going to Boston and playing the fucking channel and shit. I mean, I and I didn't tell anybody. They wouldn't have like understood
1: that going. world, anyways, right?
2: No, and I didn't talk to anybody. Anyway, it was just me. Scott was my friend, my one one friend, and yeah. we had lunch yeah. together, and we were in on it together. But uh, we didn't talk to anybody about it. <laughs> and people can go to the
1: Barlow Family General Store to pick up yeah, some have... pick up some handwritten lyrics,
2: maybe they can totally do that i'll fucking handwrite a deep wound song if you want and then uh we have a, we started this thing called a Substack, which is kind of like a subscription thing if you want to like it's i we do a lot of like free updates and stuff but then there's there's if you subscribe to it it's like five five bucks a month and um, you can get new tunes and oh wow where do pe- where can people find that it's called barlow family general Substack. stack ah we have the Barlow Family General Store, and then we have the Barlow Family General Substack, and the, there's links to all this stuff in our Raw Impressions uh, podcast. You know, little description. that will have the have the links to these these things that we're doing. But yeah, we're just we're just mess. We're just like trying to figure out a way where I. I mean, because I'm just not working as much as I. Yeah. <laughs> so, and none none of this stuff is like. I mean, this stuff is all just beginning. And, yeah. But you know, but it's fun.
1: Right on. Lou, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it.
2: No worries. No worries. Thanks for
1: calling.
0: Alright. So cool to have Lou on the show and man oh man, some great nugs and one thing that Lou mentioned which was uh, kind of reminded me of is these uh, these comps, the tributes right? The Neil Young tribute and the birds tribute that Dinosaur Jr. is on. I was thinking about you know, there was a whole bunch of those back around oh, yeah. this time and into the 90s, right? Like they were, it was just like tribute album crazy in the late 80s, early 90s. I listened to these ones again. They're, they're not super awesome. Like they're spotty for me, I guess I would say. I definitely like on the, uh, the Neil Young tribute that's on Caroline records from 89 called the bridge. Um, I definitely like some of the bands on there, soul asylum, you probably uh dig that Nicky Sutton track. Uh, I like I like the Pixies doing winter long, Sonic Youth doing Computer Age. The Dinosaur Jr. song Lot of Love is kinda okay. But I forgot that there was a Henry Kaiser song on here and it's killer.
1: Yeah, there's even another Henry Kaiser song on the CD
0: version, actually. Really? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh. Uh, I didn't know about the birds one actually. I have the 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 Neil one, that that one's quite well-known, the Neil Young tribute one. You see that around quite a bit. I didn't even know the Birds one existed. At least I don't think I did, which is weird because it has some garage bands on it and it's on Imaginary Records, so kind of yeah. in my wheelhouse. And it's got bands that I love, like the Barracudas, Mock Turtles, uh, the Chills. Dinosaur does I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better. Sounds like Lou singing like the main part, uh, yeah. more yeah. in the style he would do later on in Sabado or Reunion-era Dinosaur Jr. Not like you when we've heard Lou sing up until this point on dinosaur records, maybe on Polito he sang a little bit like this, but usually it's more like
0: bulbs of passion.
1: Yeah. It's screaming, right? (laughs) Um, like we're going to hear when we get to this record actually. Um, but there's another vocalist on it and it's not Lou and it's not Jay. So I'm not sure who it is. Do you know?
0: I don't No.
1: Yeah. I tried to find out, but I couldn't, I did a little sleuthing and I think it's maybe their friend, Artie Hurwitz, aka Artie Sinatra, who is uh, the head inside the Sun on the first record on Homestead. Oh, okay. Homestead. Maybe yeah, one yeah. of our listeners can confirm that. Yeah, I, I think that's who it is, though.
0: Yeah. Again, for me, like it's cool, but it's not an amazing cover. I actually like the Neil the Neil Comp better than the Birds Comp. Uh, I don't know why. There's there's some tracks on here that are that are pretty good. Like I like the. The Thin White Rope song and the Giant Sand song are okay. Yeah, I the comp that they um,
1: recorded, uh, just like Heaven for, I'm thinking might have been this 10, 7 inch box set called The Devil's Jukebox. Oh yeah, uh, that had Sonic Youth, Head of David, Rape Man, Big Black, Butthole Surfers. It came out in '89 on Blast First, and I, I what I read was that Lou didn't Lou wasn't too certain about this, but I I read that. This was supposed to be for a comp on Blast First. That, of course, could be bad information. So, but assuming that it, that, is, that that's true, my assumption it was e- it is it either would have been that one or also around this time there's the nothing short of total war compilation, which Dinosaur Junior is actually on, Bob's of Passion uh, appeal session version. So possibly it was they had committed to that comp, and when they decided not to give them Just Like Heaven, they gave them that instead.
0: So I always thought that nothing short of Total War and the Devil's Duke Box were essentially the same tracks. Maybe. I thought that they were. Yeah. Like it has very very similar trackless, similar bands. I always thought they were the same.
1: Hmm. Well, I don't think Bulbs of Passion is on the any Devil's of the Devil's box? Yeah. Oh, okay. Of course that's all pure speculation on my part. Uh, one part that I thought was pretty cool in the interview was he he mentioned Todd Cote from Leafy Green Booking, who I, I know, I've worked with him for 20 years. His band I'd never heard of, and I couldn't find anything about them, Brain Injured Unit. Awesome name. Uh, he still books. I just booked a Bob Log show through him, and um, he books bands like the Bell Rays, Mud Honey, Swans, Unsane, Kid Congo. Uh, also a band I could not find any music to, to hear was Murph's oi band, All White Jury. All <laughs> I could find on YouTube was a DC band with the same name.
0: All White Jury? Yep. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
1: And I also couldn't find this footage of Training Ground that he mentions from like Shea Stadium or what, whatever. Um, but there is footage from December 10th, 2016, where Scott Helen comes out on bass and Jay plays drums and Lou plays guitar and they do Psych to Die in Training Ground at a Dinosaur Junior show. Oh yeah. And Lou gets the crowd to sing happy birthday to Jay. It's his birthday. And he's just like. Loves it. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can tell he's just thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's actually quite a bit of footage of dinosaur playing training ground, including some great footage in a studio session at Roundhead Studios in Auckland, New Zealand, like pro oh. sh- real pro shot stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Kind cool. of like you see it like KX EP or whatever.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The Seattle one. Yep. It's
1: kind of that type of thing. Uh, His podcast, Raw Impressions with his partner, Adele Barlow. They recently did two parts about Deep Wound. I haven't listened to the second one. It kind of just came out, but they're great. They're short. Lou plays acoustic versions of Psyched to Die, Lou's anxiety song, uh, Dead Babies. So definitely check that out. You want to get into this record, Ryan? Yeah, I'm on. History lesson, part
0: two. Okay, to kick us off, Brant, how about some Spaceman? How about? I'm okay, surprised so we have some. <laughs> we do, we do. I, you know, every time that we read from uh, Michael Whitaker from the SST catalog, I worry that it's our last one. But thankfully, we still have not had our last one, it appears, because here is, from the SST catalog, Dinosaur Jr., Just Like Heaven. These shaggy mammoth noise fests add up to Robert Smith's worst nightmare. No hairspray. Three non-LP cuts with loose prehistoric vocals on chunks. SST's historic first <laughs> SST 244. 12-inch 45 ca 3-inch CD. So they haven't went full merch by that point. Only 12-inch ca and a three inch CD. I don't know if that's true. They would have had a seven inch out at the same time. Oh, sure.
1: I don't know if it's their first single. Oh, no? No. It's, hey, man, dude,
0: it says it's the first single okay. in the
1: catalog. I feel like we've seen singles, but I could be
0: wrong. Well, we may have seen singles that were uh, manufactured later than 1989 for a release that came out before 89. Yeah, maybe. How about, how about that? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Swish, swish, boom. There you go, man. Like the Sometimes EP, right? Maybe. You know, release that fire hose and four years later, put it out on a single. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. So we've got three tracks and uh, there's lots of nugs on these tracks. So let's start with Just Like Heaven. There's some chunks on them, maybe? There's some chunks. Yeah. For sure. Yep.
1: Okay. Yeah. The A side of the 12 inch. And I'm assuming the 7-inch.
0: Yeah, well, my 12-inch only has an A-side that you can play. Right. My version, right? Right, So so that's what I was listening to. This is Just Like Heaven originally by The Cure.
1: Yeah. Written by the whole band, drummer Boris Williams, keyboardist Lowell Tallhurst, multi-instrumentalist Porel Thompson, bassist Simon Gallup, and, of course, guitarist-vocalist Robert Smith. They wrote this during recording sessions in southern France in 1987. Robert Smith's lyrics drew inspiration from a past trip to the seashore with his future wife, uh, the memories of which make up the basis for the Cures video for this song. Uh, It was the third single released from their 1987 album Kiss Me Kiss Me Kiss Me and became their first American hit, reaching number 40 on the Billboard charts in 1988. Robert Smith has said he considers it one of the band's strongest songs.
0: Yeah, and you heard Lou talk about how big of a fan of The Cure they were, right? Mm -hmm. I've got this spiel from Lou actually out of the Dinosaur Jr. book. This is that Rocket 88 book from
1: 2013.
0: Yep. Here's Lou. One of the most influential records to me was Wanna Buy a Bridge, a Rough Trade compilation from 1981, which was only a domestic release. It had the Raincoats, Young Marble Giants, the first Scritti Politti single, which had incredible guitar playing on it, Robert Wyatt's on it, Delta Five, who were like a sister band to the Gang of Four, who I loved. All these bands who had that post-punk, angular guitar sound were so influential to me. Then the New York bands who were part of the no-wave scene, like the Contortions, Bush Tetras, who were pre-Sonic Youth, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, D.N.A., Peter Hook playing the bass like a guitar was so influential on us. We had bass lines so similar to Joy Division songs. The Cure were a huge influence to us. I sold a lot of records when I got into hardcore, but not the Cure discs. I still end up going through Cure phases. (laughs) So huge influence on the band, and and Lou is a big fan. And it's easy to forget how big of a hit this was, if you can call it that, like on college radio. Like this... This was a huge, huge hit, a monumental cover. And I mean, I didn't see anything that said this, but we were talking about that Neil Young tribute, the birds tribute, and just the slew of tributes that came out in the late eighties, early nineties. This is one of those quintessential, you know, late eighties indie rock cover songs that just blew, blew open the doors for what was to come. I think, you know, um, in the uh, the Nick Atfield book, You're Living All Over Me, he does a spiel about this track. This cover, originally released as a single by SST in February 1989, is rightly fabled a dynamic masterpiece, one of the all-time great takeoffs of one band by another, and even more brilliant because, in spite of the apparent contradiction between the two bands, Loud American Fuzz Rock meets Wimpy British New Wave, Dinosaur's version is in a lot of ways an imaginative and nonetheless painstakingly careful homage. It reminds us, like those photos that document Jay's preferred attire in 1985, that this kind of aloof, cooler-than-rock style loomed just as large in Dinosaurs' background as Black Sabbath, Venom, or other bands much heavier. The staggered introduction is one important point. Faithful to the original, it also demonstrates how Dinosaur would build up their sound, layer by layer, and the versatility of their guitars. Bass and drums, acoustic, jet engine, electric, wah-wah siren lead, imitating the original's synth, and then the real star of the show, Lou's little choked-to-death ukulele. Mm-hmm. Also, also, Jay's solo, which, while characteristically raucous, stays remarkably close to the tinny piano one from the original version. The Cure were confused but amused by the whole thing. By the way, inviting Dinosaur to play a show with them in Denmark in May of 1989. And I think that's when that photo shoot took place that you spoke to Lou about. Yeah. I did not pick out the ukulele. Yeah, me either. And I'm not sure if it's a uke or if it's just the acoustic. Um, But then... Nick goes on to talk about the ending of the song, which you spoke to Lou about as well. Here's Nick. Mainly, though, the cover's ending. We all crave an ending. A signal for closure, just as much as one for the beginning. Pretty much anything will do. A final smashed chord or feedback loop, perhaps. effects pedals, chiming, bells ringing. Anything that repeats to fade. Even the most iconoclastic bands, at their most iconoclastic, give us this. But this doesn't. It's probably not deliberate. Someone, I imagine, forgot to turn the tape over or elbowed the stop button or spilt Dr. Pepper on the mixing desk and the band liked the effect. It just stops dead, mid-breath, and funny how in music nothing hits you far harder than something. So, one final curious scream from Lou, all too loud, supposed to copy the original's You but sounding far more like death metal's no, a flat denial of the whole thing. The instant silence stopped, freeze-framed on a chord that, as it turned out, was only resumed 20 years later with the searing lead attack of Beyond, another beginning without warning. So not quite unintentional. They totally razored that ending. Yeah, but,
1: I mean, when they play it live, they do it, pretty well. If you listen to it, it just ends with Lou, Lou just screaming, screaming <laughs> and a, you know, they just end it on a dime, but it, it works. I think like when I listened to that birds track in particular, the cover they're during that session, they're clearly like not taking it too seriously. No, no. I and I think, so. I think that was probably also the case to a degree with this song. And at some point somebody probably heard it and was like, whoa. Like you guys got something there. This is really fucking good, and or maybe they just re- realized it themselves. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah. Recorded at Fun City by Wharton Tears. We should mention as well.
1: Well, that's what it says in the liners. Lou kind of figured maybe not that this was recorded. You know, um, in that one session with all of these B sides.
0: Yeah, separate from the bug session. He thinks. Hey. Yeah, but I mean. Throwdown and chunks were recorded at Fort Apache, yeah. and you know when you look at the uh, the credits on the the Neil Comp, it says Fort Apache engineered by Sean Slade.
1: Yeah, my assumption was they did this earlier during You're Living All Over Me because one one of the sides of that record basically was recorded at Fun City, but who knows? Yeah, I I found a couple of cool reviews Ryan on a blog called Noise Crumbs. It says, Dinosaur Jr. increased the pace, beefed up the rhythm section, got rid of the synthesizer, and grunged it all up. There's only two years, 87 and 89, between these two versions, but those years make a huge difference. The drums, synthesizer, and general jangle all place the Cure's original firmly in the 80s, while the fuzzed-up bass, drawled vocals, and overdriven guitars place Dinosaur's version firmly in the grunge canon. Hmm. Dinosaur Jr.'s punked-up version adds power to the pop melodies, as well as a blast of Mascus' trademark guitar heroics, changing the tone completely. The video for the cover version is great, too. They enlisted puppets to provide the visual energy that Jay, Lou, and Murph resolutely refused to deliver. Here's another one, Ryan, from uh, the Magnet Magazine blog, 2009. It's called... Take cover, Dinosaur Jr. vs. The Cure, when a cover version is better than the original by Edward Fairchild. He says, in 1989, Dinosaur Jr. speared the weepy original with a wah-wah pedal and a warm blanket of big muff fuzz. Jay Maskus told Musician Magazine, we recorded it for a compilation album, but when we finished it, we liked it so much, we didn't want to give it to them. Reportedly, it's Robert Smith's favorite version as well. Here's Robert Smith. Maskus sent me a cassette and I was, and it was so passionate. It was fantastic. I've never had such a visceral reaction to a cover version before or since. And hmm. then, it, and then it says like the ending, supposedly Mascus didn't know how to play the end of the song. So he just stops. Yeah, not quite. And, uh, you mentioned, or, you know, we talked to Lou about the, the melody maker. He wasn't sure which, which, uh, which magazine, but it was melody maker, the photo session, the photo session, an article, May 6th, 1989. And it says that the kind of at the start of this article on the eve of releasing their cover version of the cures, just like heaven, dinosaur junior visited Britain where Steve Sutherland words and Tom Sheehan picks, introduced them to Robert Smith. What did he think of their version? What did they think of him and why was Jay Mascus wearing a police cap? <laughs> you remember that story, Ryan? Remember yeah yeah, we talked about that. Here's uh they're talking about the the song ending bluntly or whatever um, Smith liked that. He liked the impudence, the implied disrespect. He tasted as he often did playing with the cure the sweet exhilaration of wanton carnage. So he did what he had to do. He turned down their offer. He wouldn't under any circumstance appear in their video they they had asked him to be in their video it undermined their version of the song and anyway he was busy on his own album it, here's what it says what happened was that dinosaur jr bought a tape of kiss me kiss me kiss me to play in the bus on tour and just like heaven was the only song on the whole damn album they liked they had no idea what it was about and didn't really care months later pushed for an explanation, Jay would say, it just sounds like some song dealing with fucked up chicks. (laughs) (laughs) They still couldn't this is later on in the article. They still couldn't get the end right, much as they tried and tried so eventually they thought fuck it and deeming it too good to chuck away on some compilation decided to put it out as a single just as it was. And they're talking here about the, the cover they did of Peter Frampton's Show Me The Way. Mm, And they they say there was also a version of Quest from their first album covered so badly by Phantom Tollbooth that according to Jay, it was quote, just another reason to kill yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's a pretty funny article. You you can find that
0: online. Mm -hmm. Great picture of them with with Robert Smith. Yeah. In this Dinosaur Junior book, they actually talk about the photo shoot and, and here's Jay. Lou was pretty scared back then of everything. We had a photo shoot with Robert Smith in England after we recorded Just Like Heaven. The Cure were rehearsing for a tour in a hangar type place where they had a full stage setup. We're supposed to take a picture for Melody Maker or something. Pretty much all the time Lou was hiding in a corner in a ball, petrified of the Cure and the whole thing. And here's, uh, here's a spiel from Mora out of that visitors box set about the video. Because the video, of course, is pretty legendary, too. Oh, yeah. Here's Mora Jay asked me if I wanted to make a video for Just Like Heaven. I had only been working with video for about three months, and I had a video artist, Tony Arsler, as an instructor. As students, we were taught never to let technical ineptitude get in the way of a good idea. I decided to dress Sesame Street dolls as punks and have them mosh around inside a scaled-down version of Jay's childhood bedroom. Ernie wore leather and shades. Oscar the Grouch was in a Deep Wound t-shirt. The video appeared on MTV back when it actually ran music videos. Soon enough, I got a call from a Sesame Street lawyer who threatened to sue. I consider this to be an excellent accomplishment. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's a cool video. I, I have to be honest about this song. Like, you know, Lou says we still play it every show, right? And I I don't I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about Just Like Heaven. Like, if I was making someone a compilation tape of my favorite Dinosaur Junior songs, I... No,
0: it's not this one.
1: I probably wouldn't even have put it on there, if I'm being no, honest.
0: Like, no, no. It was just this intersection of the underground scene and the late... Late 80s that made everyone go ape shit. That's what this song was. Yeah.
1: Well, hey, don't get me wrong. As I listened to it this week, like I was really digging it, but it's just not a, I guess I, it's not a song. It, it's so closely associated with the band too. It's kind of like what we were saying with freak scene. Yeah. Like, you know, same with me. Like, I guess I just, I don't know if I just lean towards some of the deeper cuts maybe or something. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I love it. I know why people like it, but I, I would put something else on a comp tape too. There's better songs off a of bug or you're living all over me for sure. Yeah. They did though on uh, the merge reissue of you're living all over me from 2005, they replaced show me the way with just like heaven. So it's on the CD version of you're living all over me as a bonus track as with the uh, little fury things. And just like heaven videos, you can get them on that merge reissue CD. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, this week, when I listen to this, it's probably the most I've ever even thought about this song, if I'm being honest. Mm. And it's weird, because it's pretty, you know, it's a song that's really associated with the band.
0: Oh, yeah. I think it was associated with the band until the band came back for me, though. Maybe that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like,
1: honestly, like, I listened to those, and maybe it's just from hearing the the two SST albums and the Homestead album. And to a lesser extent, the nineties stuff so much, but I tend to go back to the reunion albums. If I want to listen to some Dinosaur Jr.
0: I really only got this, uh, got this single as a standalone release, not that long ago, like in the last 10 years, I bet though, I always listened to this track in the context of the fossils release. Yeah. So it was never really a standalone release for me it was always part of a a bigger record i guess yeah, i don't know yeah that's probably part of it for me too yeah yeah
1: maybe if it would have been tacked on to you're living all over me when i was originally originally listening to it or something you know yeah. yeah 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 okay i'll just say before we we move on that the ending like the way it cuts off you kind of it's weird like and you never really get used to it you know
0: i know it's j- <laughs> it's jarring every single time i think that's what like that's kind of what Nick is getting at in the uh, 33 and a third book though. Right. It yeah. just leaves you hanging every time.
1: Okay. So on some of the versions, this would be the B side uh, with throw down. And this is a, uh, I think probably just Jay. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it's even Jay playing drums, not Murph. Sounds like something he maybe just did on a whim after everybody else left the studio or something for the day. That's just the vibe I get. Yeah, um, It's, it, it's just drums, acoustic guitar, a a double tracked slide, one kind of in each channel and then Jay just drawling out a vocal. It's over before it starts. It's 45 seconds. The slide the slide guitar playing is kind of the the cool part of of Throwdown, but for me Throwdown is a throwaway. Oh, no way. Not for you?
0: No, I no, I like it. It's short. It do, it doesn't overstay its welcome. I like the sound of the drums. It sounds like it's recorded in like a uh you know, like a warehouse or something. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, well, the same with the slide. Yeah, yeah. I like it. It's, it's a good interlude for me on a single. Yeah.
1: All right, and then we've got Chunks, written by Jack Choke Kelly and Tony Perez, uh, the guitarist of short-lived American hardcore band from Boston, Last Writes. It's from their one and only single, 1984, Tang Records. Ryan's holding it up right now. It's Tang 2. Tang 1 was Negative Effects' self-titled album. I have a fair amount of Tang releases, more, Ryan, from the late 80s and and the 90s, like Poison Idea and some of the later more rock and metal stuff they were putting out. And I had no idea until researching for this episode that Tang is an acronym for Teenagers Are No Good.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So I didn't know that either. Like, it's not like I am you know, super up on Tang. I only found out about it when I got this box set. I don't know if you've ever Mm. seen this one, Tang, the first 10 singles. And there's this excellent booklet that comes in it, written by Curtis. And it says, Teenagers are no good right along the top. And uh, it does a spiel about each of these 10 releases. And it does one on this Last Rites single. Ooh, hit me. Yeah. And uh, I also found out, I didn't really know this because I don't have an original copy I only have it as part of this box set But I looked in uh, my trusty Flex book And there are just a bazillion versions Of the cover of this uh, of this single And it, it does say in uh, the Flex book Of course this was a short lived Boston hardcore band Fronted by uh, Choke or Jack Kelly Post negative effects And pre-slapshot of course. So yeah, that he was
1: he was the singer in Negative fa- Effects as well.
0: Yeah. yeah. Post Negative Effects pre Slapshot Jack Kelly. And uh here's what it says in the uh the Tang Records the first 10 singles booklet about this Last Rites, Chunks and the B-side So Ends Our Night. Release date June 1984, originally to be issued as a five song EP on Exclaim. And Exclaim of course is another hardcore label from that region. Um, In fact, Exclaim, I think, was from Lynn, Massachusetts. And it's a label that put out releases by DYS, for example. Mm -hmm. So originally supposed to be on like a five song cassette EP, I believe. So Ends Our Night was not part of the EP. The sixth, it was gonna be the sixth song from The Last Rights Sessions. It was gonna be an outtake. And then Curtis says, I wasn't gonna let this happen. After I heard it, I demanded to have the track as the B-side of Chunks. There are 1,000 copies, one pressing only. The original cover was a gladiator with his foot over a punk rocker with a mohawk. Sadly, it was rejected. The band played one show, November 6, 1983, in Greenfield, Massachusetts. There are only five known pictures ever taken of Last Rights That Day by Ed Casey, And all were used as covers for this release, all the various covers. The first 101 copies were done as a parody with a striking World War II cover, a.k.a. the Hitler cover, and you can see this on Discogs. It's also in the Flex book, which was dedicated to the girl in western Massachusetts who labeled the band as Soldiers of Destruction. The tape of the legendary show was recently donated to Tang, so when this box set came out. After almost 30 years of hibernation. So they've got a cassette of that show. Um, My memory of the day. So ends our night into another fight. As soon as last rites started to play within no time. Choke clocked some kid with his mic stand. Must have had a mohawk. Then the shit went off. I thought we were going to die that day. It was blood, hatred and intimidation. But what a show. It was supposed to be a pleasant hardcore show with deep wound, outpatients, and DYS, but we screwed it up Boston style. I knew from that day I wanted to document this shit by starting a label. Six months later, I did. So, so Last Rites, that gig inspired the start of Tang as a label for Curtis. Mm.
1: That when Lou talks about like being in the back of the room trying to not get his glasses knocked off. Yeah. I... I i kind of pictured you. <laughs>
0: well, I, I was always trying not to get my glasses knocked off. That is true. Yeah. The thank you list on the back of the single is killer too. It says, thanks to, uh, Jamie of SSD, Pat Raftery of negative effects and gangrene, Dickie Barrett of impact unit and cheapskates. Also of mighty, mighty boss tones. Cause he sings backup on the B side. So ends our night. Um, and it, it thanks just a ton of other uh, people from that Boston hardcore scene. You see names like um, Dave Smalley in here, of course, Jeff Bale, Gerard Cosloy. Um, there's a number. And there's lots of their names are uh, misspelled. Pusshead gets a, a mention. Um, and then some bands as well. Seven Seconds, DOA, Big Boys, Husker du, Circle Jerks, Stranglehold. Um, and everyone else who made Tang number no. 1 a Success and Tang number one, of course. This is number two. Tang number one was Gangrene Sold Out. Yo,
1: hmm. Uh, well, that Last Rites two song single uh, was reissued with those four extra tracks on Reflex, not the Terry Katzman Reflex, but the Belgian hardcore reissue label. And yep. those six songs are packaged with the Negative Effects album, mm-hmm. also, which was released on Tang. Big-time Discharge influence on the Last Rites tracks. This song, Chunks, even has a similar riff to Protest and Survive by Discharge. (laughs) Yeah. Great choice to have Lou sing it, I would say. They do a great version of it on that Lockdown album, Live from the Sinclair. Lou's clearly enjoying himself, if you listen to it. Uh, Pretty classic youth crew lyrics as well. Mm -hmm. Like, brothers, we're one in the same, whatever we do... We do it with the pack and you couldn't stop us even if you tried because we'll be together until we die. They tack it onto Repulsion, almost like a medley you know, on that live version. um, And they also did it in their May 1989 Peel Session along with Budge and No Bones, but it's not on the in-session Peel Session CD for whatever reason. It's weird. Mm,
0: probably not commercial enough.
1: Maybe not. This would have been probably the last release by this original lineup until the reunion, I think. Sam Nee of the of the Scene in Between books. He has a killer Instagram page also called Scene in Between, and he, he posts lots of amazing pics and articles. And he posted a cool article from 89 um, that I sc- screencapped a while back. Not sure where it's from, but it's the, the article's t- titled Dinosaur Extinct. And then it says, Jay Mascus quits the band for a somewhat energetic and controversial lifestyle in New York. Hmm. And it talks about him jamming with Don Fleming and Thurston Moore in that band, the Velvet Monkeys, around New York. Oh, yeah. And it it mentions that there was, uh, they caused, quote, quite a stir at the CMJ College Radio Conference. It says they, this is the quote, it says, they burst in and blasted the star conference panel featuring Lemmy, Morrissey, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. (laughs) Like, kind of an impromptu gig, I think. Uh, And it mentions Dinosaur Jr. having just returned from an Australian tour with new bassist Donna Bedell. Right. Who's, of course, more commonly known as Donna Dresch. And they refer to her as X Screaming Tree. And, of course, we've talked about that. She she briefly replaced Van Conner. Rest in peace, circa 1988, I believe. In between Invisible Lantern and Buzz Factory, uh, she toured with them and played on an unreleased session at Spinhead. Um, some of those songs, in a re-recorded version, ended up on Buzz Factory, which we'll be getting to in about a month. Can't wait for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think she did a U.S. tour with Dinosaur, and and she plays bass on the Wagon 7-inch from 1990. Which yeah. of course is a different version from the the Green Mind album, and Van also toured behind Green Mind in 1991 before Mike Johnson came into Dinosaur Jr. for their post Green Mind albums in the 90s.
0: Yeah. Hey, I just finished that uh, Greg Prado book on Lanigan. Yeah. And Mike Johnson is all over it. I didn't realize that he was you know such a collaborator with Lanigan on those early records I totally missed that man I have to go back and check quite a few of them actually yeah yep his solo stuff
1: is kind of Lanigan-esque some of it
0: yeah I've checked it out way back it didn't really grab me yeah but it's uh it's back on the list to check out again because again I might just have different ears these days yeah I've always loved more Jasper's
1: cover art for this. It almost looks like an actual photo of a brain that's been kind of painted around. It's, it's like you're looking into a cave and there's a giant orange and yellow brain in there. And yeah, yeah, it's cool. Does it say anything about how she
0: created it in that box set? Yeah. In the visitor's box set, she does a spiel about this cover art as well, kind of comparing it to the Bug album cover, which she didn't really like how it turned out remember how it didn't really get the right color when it uh when she saw it back on the jackets but um here is mora comparing this ep to the bug record just like heaven on the other hand turned into one of my favorites everything in my process as an artist and the production of image making for the band seemed completely in sync with this project i pulled material from all of my contemporary sketches and writing I was very interested in ideas about consumption, looking at loads of medical books and food imagery, especially nutritionally empty foods like Rice Krispie treats and marshmallow fluff. It didn't matter to me if the work made complete sense. If someone spent time trying to figure it out, that was good enough for me. So it looks like you were good enough for Mora. Yeah, well, I, it's my favorite of,
1: by far of her uh, artwork for, for the band uh just the colors the the painted lettering uh, the the blue or bluish purple and the the red border just love it
0: yeah by now it's iconic for yeah. dinosaur junior this era of dinosaur junior yeah and uh even there are some images on the back as well that don't look quite as doctored as the front one but still totally fit the uh, the image with like these weird psycho like little smiley faces on a buddha head more brains more guts, more chunks. Yeah. We should talk about, I don't know if there's dead wax on the LP, but there's,
1: we should definitely talk about the etchings. Speaking of body parts.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. The B side, like if you, if you listen to prior shows, we always got to check and see if there's dead wax. Well, the B side of the 12 inch is all dead wax. Yeah. It's a, it's a full etching and it ha and it says on here, you can see in it. Maura Jasper, she kind of signed it like a piece of art, which is so killer, but there is, um, I don't know if I just start by Mora's name, there's a heart, there's a hand, there's, I don't know, it looks like a kidney, more hearts, some lungs, a brain. The lung? It might be, no, 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 there's two lungs, oh. so not, not the lung. Um, there is, speaking of Rice Krispies, there's a triangle with a box of Rice Krispies in it, some weird, uh, lower and large intestines, a tooth, and then like a mouth. And it shows like a weird number one and number two, like it's, uh, almost, um, referencing the description in a medical journal. So totally makes sense with, uh, what Mora was describing in that visitor's box set, but it's cool. I, I totally, when I, I remember buying this, it was an unexpected find to find that the B side was a total etching. It was like, Whoa. That's a, I don't think I've seen that except for, um, uh, what is it? The Lee Ronaldo record. There's a bunch of etchings on that one.
1: Like a full side of a record that's fully etched?
0: On, uh, Lee Ronaldo's record?
1: Or are you just, do you mean just on SST? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. The the SST Lee Ronaldo record. There's that etching kind of like, like, I don't know. Are there any other SST vinyl etchings other than these two like this?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, not that I can recall.
0: Yeah. yeah. Other than other than just the dead wax, you know, secret jokes. That's about it.
1: Yeah. Well, hey, not you know, it, it's pretty clear they were trying to make a few bucks off off of this one. Who, SST?
0: Yeah. No, with all the
1: ver- different versions, <laughs> for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. I I counted at least 8 different versions of this EP, so for sure they were. Yeah. I I just what I can't tell is whether this thing took off on radio and then they just started pumping out a zillion different versions to totally capitalize on it. It seems like it
1: probably, but I mean, dinosaur junior was pretty big by that point.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: So pretty safe bet that they're going to sell quite a few of these. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, people connected to the, to the band and to the label were blown away when they heard the song, Mm -hmm. you know, seems to be like the common reaction was people were like, this is really good.
0: Yeah, well, I just, I can imagine that there were a ton of Cure fans who became Dinosaur Jr. fans who were blown away when Dinosaur Jr. was covering The Cure. Yeah, probably, eh? Yeah, oh yeah. All right, ballot result? Yeah, on. Ballot result. So is it going to be just like heaven, even though you were kind of dissing it? <laughs> I'm. On,
1: I'm not dissing it. I like it. It's just, I think my my point. Well, you know what my point was. It's just not something that, it's just not a song that I closely associate with Dinosaur Junior, but it, it is cool. Chunks is cool too, but I think we got to go with Just Like Heaven.
0: Yeah, I do get your point. It does need to be Just Like Heaven, and I get your point with how, you know, it is a bit curious, at least now, you know, this many years or decades later, with, you know, how big of a buzz the the cover of this track would have been and how closely associated it was, it is with the band with just such a huge catalog. Yeah. And this, when I think of my favorite dinosaur junior songs, I don't think of dinosaur junior covers. Yeah. I think of originals Yeah. Same. for, for sure. Every time. Yeah.
1: All right. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Lou for being on the show. It's been a long time coming and it was just so amazing having, having Lou on.
0: Yeah. Huge thrill.
1: Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week?
0: Next week, Brent, we're going back to a band we haven't had on for a while. It's SST 245, The Alternatives Buzz LP, and we've got a special guest.
1: Yeah, we've got Jim Thompson on the show. Can't wait. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com Thanks again for all the support. We hope to see you next week.